justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta welcome to justify our episode this week is titled a richer union of states and we'll be joined in a bit by a very special guest professor bibek debroy the chairman of the prime minister's economic advisory council but before that here's our roundup before we round up our cases in the supreme court and the high courts today it's important for me to talk about what i think is a real failure of the rule of law in the last week the heinous rape and murder of the girl in hyderabad and the equally heinous encounter killing of the four suspects by the hyderabad police is troubling for many reasons i won't go into the reasons here but i think the jubilation that has accompanied the encounter killing which is essentially extrajudicial and a sign of a lawless society does force us particularly in the legal fraternity to confront our failures in providing speedy and sound and reliable justice for victims it's not a good sight when mothers of children say that as mothers they are happy with what has happened we can understand the sentiment but i think as lawyers we must do better to ensure that justice is delivered quickly and fairly otherwise we might as well shut our courtrooms but coming to our courtrooms which did function this week and functioned very well here are the key cases in p chidambaram's bail application the supreme court finally granted him bail this was a judgment that's more remarkable for its common sense rather than any new development in law this judgment authored by as bopanna judge in the supreme court set aside the judgment of the delhi high court which had denied him bail the judgment of the delhi high court had said that because of the gravity of the offense and the key and active role played by p chidambaram he would not be granted bail the supreme court said that while the gravity of the offense was important it could not be overriding the triple test well known to every lawyer that chidambaram was a person who was not a flight risk he was a person who could not tamper with the evidence and he could also not influence witnesses were all in his favor in setting aside the high court judgments there was also something particularly noteworthy that the supreme court did it said that the high court could have satisfied itself on the basis of any material that might have been given to it in a sealed cover but the contents of that sealed cover could not be a part of the decision of the high court the sealed cover is contrary to our adversarial system of justice which must allow rebuttals and counters so hopefully this will mitigate the practice of sealed covers which seems to have become 
all too common in India today. Moving on to another interesting fundamental rights case, P. Gopal Krishnan versus State of Kerala, delivered by Justice Khanwilkar in the Supreme Court. In this case, the appellant had been arrayed as an accused under Section 376 of the IPC and Section 66E of the IT Act. The question in this case, which was essentially a question of evidence, was whether the contents of a memory card qualifies as a document within the meaning of Section 3 of the Evidence Act. And so, would it be obligatory to furnish a cloned copy of the contents of the memory card to the accused? There were two rights at play here. One, the right of fair trial, which should give the accused access to such materials that is necessary for him to defend himself and the right to privacy because the contents of the memory card could have material that infringed the privacy of the individual. The court said in this case that a balancing approach would have to be followed and came out with a rather interesting balance. It said that a video, which was a key piece of evidence in this case, which was on the memory card, would have to be shown to the accused, but a copy of it would not be provided because that might infringe the privacy of the individual. This is a neat balance and I think one that courts in the future would be well placed to follow. Moving on to another case, which is the Union of India versus Ramesh Bishnoi. This was a case around the Juvenile Justice Act. And the question was that whether a previous FIR filed against an individual when he was a minor could be used as a factor to not recruit the individual when he was a major. So can the framing of charges against a minor be held against him to later deny him employment to state services? The court reading the Juvenile Justice Act expansively said that the purpose of the Juvenile Justice Act is rehabilitation. This was a case where the juvenile was not even convicted. There were only certain charges that were framed and given that the individual would not be denied employment that would be contrary to the understanding of the Juvenile Justice Act and our criminal jurisprudence. Given a time when everyone seems to be becoming bloodthirsty and vengeful, this is a note of good sense struck by the Supreme Court. Finally, our High Court case of the week, R.V. Darandale versus the state of Maharashtra. This was a death penalty case and again, a fairly heinous set of facts. Three lower caste youths were killed and their bodies mutilated in connection with an honor killing. The accused had secured the presence of the deceased on the pretext of getting them to clean the accused septic tanks. And soon after, the body of one of the deceased was found in the septic tank, while two others were found buried in an empty well, one of whom had also been beheaded. Their chopped up limbs were also found subsequently. The Bombay High Court held that this was a case which deserved the death penalty because it shocked the collective conscience of society. It reiterated the principle 
laid down in Mukesh versus the state of NCT Delhi, where it was held that where a crime is committed with extreme brutality and the collective conscience of the society is shocked, the court must award the death penalty irrespective of their personal opinion as regards its desirability. The court in this case followed this precedent. It does seem a shocking case, but to what extent must we allow societal determinations to affect the death penalty being awarded or not? This raises questions on the normative desirability of the death penalty and its objectivity. These are questions for a different time. Our deep dive today is titled A Richer Union of States. India, as we all know, is a union of states. We have 28 states in India, but we also have a single constitution, a single citizenship, common All India services, one election commission, and a single unified judiciary. So what is the relationship between the center and states? The legislative relationship is well known to everyone. There are three lists. List one, which is the union list, where the union can alone legislate. This has matters like defense and external affairs. List two, which is the state list, which are matters where only the state can legislate. It has matters like law and order, health, and others. And list three is the concurrent list where both the union and the state can legislate. In case of a conflict, the union prevails. This much is known to everyone. But there are two key developments here. The first is the 73rd and 74th amendments to the constitution, which brought in a third tier of governance. How do panchayats and municipalities figure in this overall scheme of federalism, which is essentially a way of dividing power. So we need to understand how the third tier fits into all of this. And second is the GST. Article 246A has brought in the GST, which is a different relation between the center and states than the one in the three lists in the schedule that works through the GST Council. This is an interesting segue to discuss what I think is an understudied but critical aspect of the Constitution, fiscal federalism. Part 12 of the Constitution, particularly chapters 1 and 2, from articles 264 to 293, deal with the sharing of revenue between centre and states and their borrowing. It's a part of the Constitution that very few of us law students and lawyers read. Very few cases arise from these provisions, and many of them comprise matters of detail that could well have been left out and made our constitution less bulky. But there is one aspect that I'd like to focus on, and that is the general scheme of revenue sharing between center and states, and the role of a very important institution, the Finance Commission, which has been in the news recently. The general scheme of part 12 is that the center will have a larger share of revenues and distribute it to states. This distribution will be done primarily by the Finance Commission, appointed by the center to be responsible for devolution. There are two sources of devolution, that is, transfer from center to states. A. Formula-based devolution under 270 from the divisible pool. 
the divisible pool is where all taxes collected by the union there are a few exceptions but we leave those aside are notionally kept to be distributed between the center and states and between the states horizontally this is based on a formula provided by the finance commission b there are grants in aid under article 275 to states on the basis of need states have a right to grants in aid but the principles on which they are to be determined will again be laid down by the commission in addition a third source of transfer had arisen by practice that is centrally sponsored schemes under article 282 these were schemes where the center paid a majority share of the funds and the states contributed typically on issues relating to health education and others in the state list they were not administered by the finance commission but by the planning commission which was an executive body commenting on this kk venugopal had opined in the late 80s much before he was attorney general and he had said quote article 282 is not an independent and a second channel vesting exclusive jurisdiction in the central government to make discretionary grants for special purposes conditional or non conditional in nature unquote going further let's hear what the legend nani palkhiwala had to say about the planning commission and sharing of revenues by the center with the states assuming you want to eradicate the symptoms of poverty it's not eradication of poverty but eradication of the symptoms of poverty give your plan to a good well run organization like ramakrishna mission or the missionaries of charity and let them do the job not a rupee will be wasted unlike the millions which are just swallowed up in governmental programs palkiwala was clear the planning commission which had made large amounts of transfers to states had presided over massive wastage of government revenue further his opinion was and we'll discuss this in our tete a tete that the commission itself was unconstitutional all devolution plan or non plan conditional or unconditional had to be done by the finance commission only in case of an emergency could the center provide grants the exception could not become the rule as had become the case now of course as we all know the planning commission has been abolished and the question that arises is what is the ideal compact between center and states the center must collect taxes but it must also fairly distribute but how does the finance commission determine to what extent and at what level do we expect governance to be delivered to the citizen how does the third tier figure in this and critically how does the gst change things fiscal federalism in india is being shaped as we speak and as lawyers interested in the constitution we must understand the momentous developments around us lest they pass us by Welcome to Tete Tete. My guest this evening is Professor Vivek Debroy, Chairman of the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council. Thanks very much for joining me, Vivek. Real pleasure to have you. So we are discussing fiscal federalism. It's a topic that is integral to the Constitution, but somehow something that we don't end up discussing very often. 
And when I was doing a little bit of research, I came across a beautiful legal opinion given by Nani Palkiwala to the Ninth Finance Commission, where he explained the scheme of fiscal federalism. And let me start by quoting that and we can take it from there. He said, disproportionately large resources are allowed to be collected by the union as compared to the exiguous resources of the states. But the balance between the union and the states is intended to be restored by a fair distribution of the net proceeds of certain taxes and by the grants in aid of the revenues of the states out of the consolidated fund. Do you think the framers conceptualization of this division between the center and states is conceptually sound? Thank you for inviting me. I think one has to realize that with time various things change. The constitution really followed the Government of India Act of 1935, which followed the Government of India Act of 1919. And subject to the basic structure doctrine, several things in the constitution need to be re-looked at. You mentioned the expression fiscal federalism, and whenever one hears the word fiscal federalism, the expression fiscal federalism, one invariably interprets it in a union state government sense. But there is a lot of devolution and decentralization, fiscal devolution and decentralization also needed at the level of the states and rarely do we talk about state finance commissions. Crux of the issue is that there are certain public goods and services. What is the optimal level of government at which you deliver these public goods and services? Because they can be economies and diseconomies of both scale and scope if they are delivered at the wrong level. We can have a discussion about what constitutes public goods and services, what is the bare minimum where you need to have public expenditure. Because these automatically by default are assumed to be areas where the government needs to step in. Now that is the crux of it. Grants in aid is a slightly different thing from centrally sponsored schemes. Grants in aid perforce have to be there, not necessarily for states because states are neat administrative boundaries because regions, states, whatever, which are not that developed cannot go out and access funds from the capital market or wherever else. So it's part of general principles of equity. So far as central sector schemes are concerned, which is different from central sector, which are 100% funded by the union government, centrally sponsored schemes essentially began to multiply in importance towards the end of the 1960s. And the question that arises is why? Because if it is a finance commission recommendation, the funds are untight funds. You have no control within quotes over what the state is going to do with that. The centrally sponsored schemes were introduced and multiplied in importance in the second half of the 60s, particularly in an attempt to ensure that the states reformed to introduce incentives for reform. That is how they multiplied. The trouble is states have complained that why are you going to have centrally sponsored schemes in areas that are squarely in the state list in the seventh schedule 
and why are you imposing this condition on us because most centrally sponsored schemes well all centrally sponsored schemes there has to be a matching grant by state so this is really the issue when mr palkiwala uh, gave his opinion the third tier of government did not exist that's right but now i think we need to examine this question of what level of government and what is the form and do i need strings which is what happens with centrally sponsored schemes or if it is important enough should it be purely a central sector scheme where there is no matching grant is required by state so let's take these one by one uh, grants in aid centrally sponsored schemes the third tier and the overarching theme of what you said which is to match the expenditure with the correct level of government where it's going to be performed let's take that given the fact that the constitution was written in 1950 uh, at that time had a strong centralizing influence immediately post partition but was also taken largely from the government of india act 1935 we've traveled at the least 70 years and perhaps as you said maybe a century if we go back to the government of india act 1919 Do you think that the levels at which certain services are to be performed number 1 have changed from that time and if so is the change a centrifugal one or a centripetal one and number 2 which strikes me as perhaps even more important is that there are a large number of services which we don't expect the state to perform anymore which certainly the framers of the constitution did and the seventh schedule which we had vidhi have written about you have written about much more extensively contains a antiquated list uh, of things which the framers expected government will perform so how do you think this levels of government question should be thought of today we are sort of assuming that this decision is taking taken is taken on the basis of governance and economic principles such decisions are often not taken on grounds of economics and rationality in the sense of an optimum level and i am raising the question although that's uh, peripheral to our discussion but it's important enough so i'm raising that question of state formation mm. state formation itself was not determined by grounds of economic rationality there were other reasons which went in if i look at states as administrative boundaries clearly a state which has a population that is more than 150 million approaching even 200 million is unviable that's right but at the same time there are some states which are in the northeast which are also unviable for different reasons states are also very heterogeneous some of them a state like kerala is reasonably homogeneous a state like chhattisgarh or a state like maharashtra is much much more heterogeneous so but the states are administrative boundaries they are political boundaries government of india act 1935 was more centralization compared to government of india act 1919 and this was not purely because of economic considerations there were political considerations today we cannot have i hope we do have a second state reorganization commission i don't think we'll have it so the question to ask is what is the optimal level of governance that's really the question you are asking if you leave aside things like international affairs defense security etc 
law and order, I think most public goods and services, the optimal level is probably the level of the district. Mm -hmm. So without completely violating the administrative structure set in the union state of the constitution, I think we are talking about more and more expenditure going directly to the level of the districts and the planning for that public expenditure also happening at the level of the district. In a way, uh, for Gram Sahas, the 14th Finance Commission recommended it, well suggested it. But the root of the problem is you have a Union Finance Commission and there is no confirmity between what the Union Finance Commission does and what the State Finance Commissions do. And some states may not even have may finance even commissions have one, yes. that are established. Yes, and even when they have one, they don't uh, they don't listen to the recommendations of the State Finance Commission. Of the side of the yeah. Union Finance Commission. The state doesn't listen to it. That's right. So if we want to take this third tier question, given the fact that the third tier, actually in my view, is... A two and a half tier. It's really not a third tier in the way in which the 73rd and 74th amendments are, are written. And that's because of the fact that they have been conceptualized as a separate tier, but are appendages of the state. They are dependent on the state, almost parasitic on the state. How do we, perhaps in the seventh schedule, perhaps somewhere else, revitalize this third tier so that as you said even assuming that this is the way forward that if the district is the optimal level at which government should be providing services how do we make that real in our framework by the way again this is not a major point i just want to mention it because we use these words rural urban but the words rural urban beyond the census they have ceased to have any meaning because divisions get blurred so I don't even think there should should have been two separate amendments. Right. It should have been one because all because they are not quite identical in this in the sense of the rights, responsibilities, powers, whatever, whatever. At some point, we do need to have a discussion on what a new seven schedule should look at. I know that you yourself have done some work, preliminary work on what a new seven schedule might look like. And what we need to recognize is we should have a union list. I personally think there need not be a concurrent list anymore, but that's my personal view. There should be a state list and there should be a local body list. Right. Over a period of time, there has been a little bit of creeping centralization in the seventh schedule. But even more importantly, the union government has legislated on subjects that are on the state list. So it's not just a question of the seventh schedule. But I think we should look at the seventh schedule. We should look at the recommendations of the Administrative Reforms Commission, the, the recent one as well as the one from the 1960s. We should look at the recommendations of the Center State Commission. And I'm, I want to mention this in particular because the expression center state itself reflects a mindset of excessive centralization. Because mm -hmm. the word in the constitution is the union. Right. And people have argued for a long time that India, in, from the governance perspective, is excessively centralized. Mm -hmm. So we need to have that decentralization. And this mm -hmm. is part of the whole process. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think uh, there should be a relook at the seventh schedule. In, uh, on a broader canvas, there should be a look at the entire constitution also. Mm -hmm. The constitution review commission, in my view, 
did only cosmetic things but sticking to seventh schedule i think we should take a look at the seventh schedule. i think that's a that's a big point that certainly the seventh schedule reform could be the starting point for looking at parts of our constitution that may have become outdated over time and i think there's no shame in admitting that something that was written in the 1950s may not in whole be relevant today but i'd like to come to this theme of this creeping centralization one of the reasons as to why this creeping centralization has happened that you alluded to was the centrally sponsored schemes uh, the centrally sponsored schemes made states in some senses uh, obligated to the center to ask for money and i coming back to palkiwala's note he says something very interesting as he says and i quote plan expenditure and non plan expenditure are concepts wholly unknown to the constitution in fact the entire institution of the planning commission itself is foreign to the constitution they that is the planning commission and the national development council undoubtedly serve useful purposes but the fact remains that they are extra constitutional authorities now given that the 15th finance commission is the first that is fully established the 14th also worked while for a time the planning commission was there in its in its last throes but given that the 15th is is a commission that is functioning fully after the planning commission has been dissolved how do you think that might affect without sort of asking you to play soothsayer uh devolution because should it not mean that given that centrally sponsored schemes of the planning commission whether it be because of palkiwala or otherwise are now gone or should go that this should lead to increased devolution there is one thing we have not talked about so let me mention this these are areas which are supposed to be important areas for public expenditure you cannot have a situation where you have almost 800 central sector and central sponsored schemes if you have that number it means you have got no focus you have done no prioritization you are spreading your limited resources to thin there have ostensibly been recently two committees which have looked into rationalizing centrally sponsored schemes the first one was a planning commission one chaired by bk chaturvedi the second one was something that was done under the niti aayog umbrella chaired by shivraj singh chauhan but actually they did not recommend rationalization because what they really did was they had some umbrella schemes i'm doing a little bit of injustice to bk chaturvedi but doesn't matter in terms of implementation there were some umbrella schemes and all of those schemes were bundled in under those so a we must decide on what is important from the point of view of public expenditure or ndc or whatever it is i do not think you should have more than 15 or 20 because then central sector centrally sponsored combined together otherwise you are diffusing your focus and your resources technically the shivraj singh johan committee's recommendations still exists that basket expires on 31st of march 2020 hmm. so from 1st of april 2020 we were supposed to have a new basket hmm. because the finance commission's term has been extended by one more year probably the same package will continue for one more year 
But since we are talking about centrally sponsored schemes and not central sector, this needs a forum where the union government and the state government can decide and discuss on what is the right package. The GST council, regardless of our views on GST, has been phenomenally successful as a decision-making body. So we need such a decision-making body. I don't think it can be the NDC because the NDC is too much of an ornamental organization. I don't think it can be Niti Aayog because it needs to be something that is sufficiently politically empowered. GST Council is successful because it is chaired by the finance minister. So exactly similarly, GST is what? It's on taxes or one part of taxes. Exactly similarly, I think we need a similar forum. It may be an expanded GST, but whatever it is, GST Council, but whatever it is, we need a forum which now discusses the shape of public expenditure, given what you've also said, that the priorities of public expenditure today are completely different from what they were many years ago. That's right. But playing devil's advocate for a minute, given the fact that creeping centralization is, uh, is has been noticed for a, a long period of time, uh, and that uh, now the 14th Finance Commission recommended a far higher devolution for states, why can't we envisage a situation where the devolution to the states to carry on these activities is increased even further and the centrally sponsored schemes are given a quiet menu? Let's be careful in a choice of words. That the devolution union to state has always been a little over 60%. That's right. Uh, it varies a little bit, but generally it's been 61, 62, thereabouts. What is important is that share between the untied part and the tight part. And That's the centrally sponsored schemes are really tight. The tight part. So yes, the 14th Finance Commission recommended 42% untight. Add to that the central sector, whatever that is. And the rest of it is... Um, sort of centrally sponsored schemes. I agree centrally sponsored schemes should go, but before I agree that 42% should be increased, let us recognize that some bits have legislation. Mm. And if we agree that health is important as a national priority, although health is squarely in the state subject, mm. one must also agree that defense Railways, national highways, telecom are also important. In other words, if the union government is expected to contribute to health because it's, despite it being on the state list, by the same token, states must also contribute. That's right. In other words, what I'm saying is, I think there are clear areas for union government expenditure in the existing seventh schedule. Add the 42% or whatever is the figure. Add the central sector schemes. After that, if you say this, there is this leeway and that 42% can be increased, I have no problems. But the 42% cannot be increased at the expense of union government, government items on the seven schedule suffer. 
That's right. And I think that's a very valid point. And no discussion on this fiscal federalism is complete without uh, talking about the GST council in a little bit more depth. You had alluded to it as a successful model. I think it's actually more than a successful model because it's essentially pathbreaking in terms of how we do federalism in this country. And I think not much has been written about it because this is no longer center state in this hyphenated form. It's very much the units of a federation coming together and deciding jointly something that has worked really well over the course of the last three years. Now, the question is this, that how do we take this? And I'm asking you to think out aloud here. How do we try and replicate this kind of model in other areas of center state collaboration? Should there be a mission creep of the GST council and we saddle it with other functions because it's working very well? Or should we think about replicating this kind of institution, say in health, with the health minister at the, at the health? Or how do we think about doing this at scale? I don't think we should have too many of these. Uh, one area which again figures in work you have done, which is important from the point of view of taking a relook at the seven schedule, is law and order and police. The reason I'm bringing that in, by the way, on the GST Council quickly, as you myself said, you also agree that it's been phenomenally successful as a decision-making body. Also, from although from the point of view of economics, this decision to compensate states mm. has completely messed things up. But that aside, GSC Council, by the way, also union government has a veto, but every decision so far has never come to voting. It's been by consensus, so we should also recognize that. GSC Council is chaired by the finance minister. State finance ministers are members. I think on the expenditure side, there will be a lot of importance to defense, law and order, so and so forth. And particularly remember some of the border states. There need to be central sector oblique centrally sponsored schemes on external security and internal security because the two are leaked. So I'm shooting my mouth off. We can't have too many, but I think the best model might be, and I really am shooting my mouth off, is one that is chaired by the Home Minister. Mm. Because it has to be important enough politically. Mm. Oh, I think that's actually quite a provocative suggestion, because you're right, it has to be important politically, and it has to work. That's, that's really what the secret to the GST Council success is. But in terms of devolution. The Finance Commission does have another year uh, and the sharing as you said in your language between the center and the states. How do you think the GST and the fact that now there's not only sharing of CGST, SGST, IGST but there's also a GST compensation says to uh, essentially offset some of the potential losses that state governments might have faced. How do you think GST will factor into any finance commission recommendations from here on? I have no idea how the, and I'm not supposed to know what the 15th finance commission is doing. But the trouble is GST is uh, it's still work in progress. So on the basis of what has happened, 
it is a little bit difficult to forecast what is likely to happen to GST. And I'm not talking about all items not being part of GST. I'm talking about the fact that GST was supposed to replace all other indirect taxes. So the average GST weighted average GST rate should be revenue neutral. And I, at that time, there was an exercise that was done by the then chief economic advisor who said that the average GST rate to make it revenue neutral should be about 16%. We have some computations done recently by the RBI, but they're not their computations, uh, derived computations from um, Department of Revenue, which show that the average rate is 11.6%. So there has been an enormous loss of revenue on account of GST. Now, this cannot go on as consumers, people continuously say reduce the 28% rate, but GST is supposed to be a standardized rate. I cannot have a reduction of that 28% without a hiking of the 0% too. So it's not yet stable. Ideally, of course, one should have every product part of GST. With a single rate, one will never have that. So let's at least have three rates, whatever they may happen to be, let's say 6, 12, 18, and there should be no exceptions. Mm. But because it has not yet stabilized, it's very difficult to forecast on the basis of the present GST. And as I said, it's led to revenue losses. So I think like the GST, fiscal federalism itself is a work in progress. And we've had some excellent and fairly provocative suggestions from you, uh, starting with relooking at the seventh schedule, thinking about uh, a GST council replication, which is appropriately politically powered, and a number of ideas, perhaps even including a second states reorganization commission, though we both think that that will not happen. But uh, thank you very much, Vivek, for joining thank me today. You. It was a real pleasure. Thank Thanks you. very much. Time for clatter, our quiz that's a little tougher than clat. First, our answer from last week. The cricketer who shares his name with a famous respondent is Shivkant Shukla. He's a UP batsman, but shares his name with the respondent in the infamous ADM Jabalpur case. Many of you got this answer right. Our prize this time goes to Amritanshu Das. Congratulations, Amritanshu. An Amazon gift voucher is coming your way. If you want to win an Amazon gift voucher for this week's episode, listen in to this week's question. Before the Constitution of India created the Republic of India, we had 550 princely states. In one of these princely states, the ruler had set up a privy council to hear appeals from the high court of the state. But when the princely state acceded to India, there was a lapse in the Privy Council's jurisdiction and all cases pending before it were transferred to the Supreme Court. Since it would be very expensive and troublesome for litigants and lawyers to travel to Delhi, the state bar made a representation to the government of India that a bench of the Supreme Court be set up in the state to dispose the pending matters. Justice Meherchand Mahajan, judge of the Supreme Court, arrived in this state to complete the task with two other local judges. Which princely state are we talking about? 
write in with your answers to justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in and all right answers stand a chance to win a gift voucher. So get on with it and hope I receive many right answers this time. Thanks very much for joining me for this episode. Adjourn. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at vidhi underscore India for regular updates. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or any other podcast channel that you know to tune in to our next episode. Email us at justify at vidhilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode. We look forward to hearing from you.